Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food, and this week I am with Maria Bradford, author of Sweets Alone, which was the first book to tell the story of the food from Sierra Leone. The Sierra Leoneans in the UK and um, the second generation, third generation and people of Sierra Leonean heritage, they want to experience their cuisine outside of home. They want to see new takes of their ingredients outside of home. Maria came to the UK as a student and grew up with her guardian in a village in Kent, far from the colourful food culture spreading through London's West African communities. But it was her sense of being different that has led to her becoming the word on Sierra Leonean food. I asked her if she really is the first person to write about sweets alone. Other people have self-published their work, um, but the first person to be signed by a reputable um, publisher like Quadril, yes. I mean, I know that we do lots of writing retreats, cooking the books, writing retreats at my house, and we get agents and writers to come and talk to my would-be writers. And one of the, um, Emily Sweet it was, who said uh, in the February retreat that publishers are really looking for regional food books. Regional meaning the next big thing in secret kitchens, you know, and places from around the world. So I can imagine when your proposal came in, it was like, yes, bingo. (laughs) Hopefully that's how it felt because um, I definitely, um, I, I wasn't expecting it. I didn't really think there was that hunger for it. I know that it was about time that we get to that point where people know about other food and I say the other side, but I didn't necessarily feel or think that the same hunger kind of existed until yeah until the proposal went out then I felt it I was like oh okay there's something here something that in the market that people want yeah absolutely I mean it ticks all the boxes it's an unknown cuisine tick Uh, it's told by an authentic voice somebody who lived there until she was a teenager She's got something really interesting to say about ingredients that we kind of know, cassava, you know, dishes, jollof. Yes, we've yeah. heard of them, but actually we know very, very little. Put that together with a, um, a country that is becoming increasingly interested in international cuisines, particularly as we become a more uh, multicultural um, country ourselves. And actually, you've got a really good reason to publish a book like this. What was your reason for writing the book? I felt like it was time for people to know about the other side. Um, I've been, since coming to, uh, to live in the UK, I just felt disconnected um, with my food. Um, I can cook it at home. Um, you know, my friends and family know about it. But also when you're having conversations, it was always that thing is, what do people in Sierra Leone eat? What do African people eat? What do West Africans eat? And I just felt like it was time to tell the Sierra Leone story about food, our food culture, our food heritage, and also our traditions around food, because we have got lots of traditions around food. We don't necessarily um, have the um, silver <laughs> silver um, um, cutleries and service and stuff like that. But there are cultures and rituals around our food and um, dining, uh, dining etiquette as, as well. And I just wanted to tell it. And I wanted to tell the story of the people of Sierra Leone. And we've got, you know, we've, we've lived through times where there's been quite a lot of um, negative press as well. Um, and lots of um, p- 
people have very, very small view of what, of Sierra Leone. Um, so I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to tell the people about my growing up and, um, what my experience was like living in Sierra Leone and growing up in Sierra Leone around food and all of that. So I wanted to tell that story. Yes. I mean, there's some really big ideas in there, you know, that we've heard the story so many times on cooking the books, at least, uh, of people who have gone away from home on a student visa. Um, they feel disconnected from the, from the homeland. They ring their moms, they ring their grandmothers and they find the food from, from home, which they'd never even cooked when they were, when they were young, not you. It has to say, mm. you started cooking when you were very, very young. But it feels like they can feed themselves back to who they were. But on that journey, they actually find out much, much more about who they are, where they come yeah. from. And that's certainly been your story, hasn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, from the minute I got into the UK, food food was a very important part in my life anyway, before I got here. And um, my family celebrated everything with food. And culturally in Sierra Leone, we celebrated everything with food. So food was a massive, massive part of me. And I felt disconnected from that. And to going into the supermarket and not finding ingredients that you're really familiar with um, living in Kent and not finding a single stuff that you're really familiar with. Um, the only thing that I found that I could do something with at that time was peanut butter I could make like a peanut butter soup or peanut butter stew that was it so that was really difficult um you're facing there's lots of new things that you're facing a lot of cultural changes lots of questions about your your backgrounds lots of um weird questions actually about your backgrounds and lots of inappropriate questions sometimes when you say you're from Sierra Leone people just immediately the only thing that they know about Sierra Leone is the war for instance and that's all they want to focus on they forget that you're a real person and they need to talk to you and to find out about what your life is now or who you are or what your family is about they, their focus entire focus is to talk about the terrible stuff that had happened in Sierra Leone and to people that I know and care about and um, things that happened to real people. They've completely, they're disconnected from that. All they want to do is focus on that. And which was always met. It was always uncomfortable for me because I just feel like it's not something that I want to discuss. You don't go to a dinner party wanting to talk about terrible things that's happened to people. It's uncomfortable, you know, but people felt like they needed to talk to me about that. And it's about the portrayal of different countries on the news, yeah. isn't it? It's the news agenda. Yeah, of course. You know, disasters, of course. wars. That's the way that we understand the different cultures around the world. Food books offer something much, much more. They offer Absolutely. great depth. And, uh, you know, we've seen wonderful campaigns. I mean, your episode will have gone out just after Imad's Syrian kitchen. And he talks about his extraordinary trip across Europe to safety, uh, where he was able to bring his family. And it's through feeding people and through his food from home that he's able to tell the backdrop of war. So you have that juxtaposition. Uh, Olia Hercules, uh, obviously, you know, what's happening in Ukraine, she's able to tell the story of Ukraine and the riches and the depths of that culture. But at the same time, she, she really wants to talk about the war because she wants to keep the depth 
and the colour of Ukraine in people's consciousness. It, I mean, you write this in your book. You don't want to talk about it. You know, these are about real no. people. You're very clear about that. And it's an interesting one that you don't go there because you do give that backdrop of, you know, you go back to 1462 in the history of, of Sierra Leone. What is it about that particular part of its history that you really won't want to talk about? Um, for me, I just feel like it's a topic that's been exhausted. People have heard a lot about it and there's been quite a lot of negativity around that topic and around war. And um, it's just people like to talk about war. And I just felt like for a change, I wanted Cyrillian's name to be mentioned without that subject coming into the forefront of it. I wanted people to learn more about Cyrillian's rather than what has happened in Sierra Leone to Sierra Leoneans, because that happened to Sierra Leoneans. But I don't want that to be their narrative forever. I want anybody coming to the UK or going anywhere in the world, and if they say I'm from Sierra Leone, I want the subjects to be, oh, you know, what sort of food do you eat in Sierra Leone? Um, I want people to take keen interest in the individual rather than what has happened to their country. Um, you know, so for me, that was it. Although, I mean, you, you, you do go back into, into its history, which is created from civil wars. You know, the tribes heading to this small stretch of West Africa to flee persecution. I mean, you know, it's, it's, we've seen this for hundreds and hundreds of years across the whole of the world. You know, it's that combination, isn't it, of the Portuguese, mm -hmm. the European settlers from Britain and France, the colonial, juxtaposed with the settlement of London's black poor. Uh, American, American slaves, slaves yep, from the Nova Maroons. Scotia. You know, tell us a little bit about that in terms of the food culture, because it all settled in Freetown, which was when yes. you were brought up. In Freetown and around Sierra Leone in general. So um, that part of the story, it's completely um, different from what happened in 1991. For me, that part of the story was very important to be told as well, because there's also this narrative that Sierra Leone, when people think about Sierra Leone, they just think about London black poor being returned to this place. And that's all they know. People don't really talk about the people that were there before, like the Limbers, the Timini and all the other tribes that formed that has kind of escaped, um, you know, the different jihads or whatever has happened all over Africa, you know, different parts. And they've moved to this land, this place that is Sierra Leone now. People don't know that background. And I really wanted to tell that pre-slavery um, um, history. And I wanted people to learn that there was a Sierra Leone before London Blackpool were returned. There was a Sierra Leone before, um, slavery. Then, um, you know, the people that were returned to Sierra Leone, of course, they're Sierra Leoneans and, um, they're very, very important parts of Sierra Leone and it's their history and we want to keep it. We want to talk, talk about it, but we also want people to know that we're not just London Blackpool. You know, um, it was a horrible thing that was done anyway, returning people like that. But that's not the story that we want to tell. We want to say, right, there were people, this happened. And, um, you, you know, we're a mixture of different cultures, Portuguese, our language that we speak, which is Creole. It's a mixture of English, Portuguese, other African languages, French. You know, it's a mixture of all of these people. And that's what we are as Sierra Leoneans. We're a mixture of lots of different cultures. And that has formed yeah. our food culture 
and our food history. Yeah. And we are beginning to hear these stories from lots of people. I mean, in the last year alone, Melissa Thompson's Motherland, um, yeah. Riaz Phillips, West Winds, uh, winning the Jane Grigson Trust Award before he'd even written it. Um, Lerato, you know, her Pan-African book, Africana, tells these stories of these extraordinary food cultures from across Africa through to the Caribbean. Um, and that's where these secret kitchens are that the publisher's just so hungry for. And it's we are hungry for it too. You grew up in Kent or you came here as a, as a student um, and you've stayed in Kent, haven't you? How aware were you of what was happening in London in terms of West African food, in the restaurant scene, but also the market scene? Zero idea. I had no idea. I didn't even know there was a place like Peckham and Brixton and places like that. I could get cassava, sweet potato, yam, and all these ingredients that I know very well. I didn't know there was a place like that. I just thought for me, England was Westmoreland. England was Kent. England was this bubble that I was living in. And um, I did, I went to London, just into central London to do tours and just sightseeing and, and all of that. And my guardian that I was staying with made sure that I was very familiar with that, but that was it. I didn't have any clue. And to give you an example of how unaware that I was that there are places where you could go where there's a, a lot of a mix of people. I had low cut hair for the past, for about five, five years or so living in the UK because I didn't have a single salon around that could do my hair. Every salon, for example, that she took me to, it was like, oh, we're really sorry. We couldn't do that kind of hair. So I didn't know there was a place that I could get all of this. I was very much unaware of it until I had that visit to Peckham and, um, and my eyes were opened and um, my palate was opened. And I was like, oh my God, I've arrived. I'm in heaven. I'm in England. <laughs> But of course, you know, I mean, that's what follows migration mm. is that if you get a group of people and te usually migrants tend to sort of gather in the same kind of areas, they build communities, they open shops, they start importing the food that the community wants. I mean, it's happened all over the world that way. Um, you, you lived a very different world, you know, eating apples in Kent. Oh, absolutely. Apples <laughs> and strawberries. Absolutely. And presumably the only black girl in the village. I, the only black. Absolutely. That only I could not, I, to be honest, I didn't see not in my school in Tunbridge or not um, Westmoreland. There wasn't any other black person that I saw going out every day, not on the bus, nowhere. There wasn't any other black person that I saw that I was like, oh, yeah, there's another black person. And once in a while, when I go probably out of that town into somewhere else and I see another black person, the excitement on my face, I want to wave to them. I want to say hi. Um, and they're probably walking past thinking, why is this girl waving at me? <laughs> and, <laughs> but I just felt like, you know, I needed to be seen. I needed to say hi. Look at me. Hi. My name is Maria. I'm from Sierra Leone. Say hi to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, what's the link there between, you know, setting up a, a fine dining Sierra Leone Supper Club in Kent. You, presumably, you have lots of people coming to your house now, tasting your food. I mean, it's a bit of a leap from the, the only black girl in the village going to school in, in Kent to Xuan Xuan, which is your wonderful fine dining supper club. But is it trying to fit in or is it trying to let people understand something of that culture that perhaps you were a little bit too shy to talk about when you were a teenager? Um, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say, in fact, for me, I just find 
being Sierra Leonean and being different has been my superpower because it's a superpower that I celebrate every day and celebrate to anyone who would listen because I feel like, you know, growing up in Sierra Leone has equipped me for anywhere, like the resilience that I have, um, you know, the resilience I have to everything and the thick skin that I have to everything, really. Um, being grown up in Sierra Leone has prepared me for that. So I'm really, really proud of that. But um, when I started doing all of this, I just find it's very easy for people to place cuisines that they don't know anything about into a category of it's not important enough or we have to, we have the section that we need to put them where it's just about home cooks which there's nothing wrong with that you know but as a Sierra Leonean chef I felt like for me to get this message across that every cuisine is as important as the next I needed to do it in this way. It's my interpretation of how I wanted people to experience my cuisine. So it's basically, I'm not trying to copy anything, any, any other cuisine, basically. I'm just trying to say, this is what I want you to, when I, when, it, when you think about Sierra Leonean food, this is how I want you to see it. I want you to think about the ingredients that they're very, very, they're, Fine dining to me is about getting the best quality ingredients and cooking them well and making sure that when somebody eats it, they're tasting that culture, they're feeling the warmth from the food and they're feeling welcome into that culture. That's what fine dining means to me. And that's for me, that's my interpretation of it when it comes to shuen shuen. And when it comes to when I say I'm doing fine dining, that's my interpretation of it. I want it to be the ingredient to be as important as any other cuisine. I want when you talk about Cerulean food, you give it the same kind of passion that you give into Italian, French or any other cuisine around the world. And that's what fine dining means to me. And that's the interpretation that I wanted to put out. Hence, shrine, shrine. Which means fancy. Which means fancy. Yeah. And um, <laughs> that's how Cerulean's feel about it. So I thought, why not use that? Yeah, well, and and fancy culinary school as well. You went to Leith to I do. Did. You I did. did the same essentials course that I did. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, some of those people who I was talking about before, who had left the homeland and and found their way back to themselves through food, uh, Olia Hercules from Ukraine, Lara Lee from Indonesia, grew up in Australia, but found her way back to her Indonesian food, but did it via Leith's. Um, I don't know if Sabrina Guy or did it, but it's a really interesting thing. You go to learn at a posh London culinary <laughs> school where they teach you French technique. What's that about? I know, I know. Um, so that was in my initial moves. When I first started, I really wanted to go into an African restaurant and gain experience because I wanted to be able to work with more African chefs and more African ingredients and that. But as we know, that's still a little bit scarce it's still a bit difficult to find those kitchens that you can go and you can go and learn about the ingredients from that region. So I had another option. I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to go somewhere and learn about, you know, Sierra Leonean food. Why not go to a school like Leeds, um, learn about techniques from like the classics, basically, and then apply that to African ingredients, which is where the Afrofusion side. I know I'm not going to go to Leeds to learn to cook the traditional core stuff. Leeds is not going to teach me how to deal with cassava, yam and all of those things. But I'm going to equip myself by learning the classics and then 
focus also on my core traditional um, Sierra Leonean ingredients, which I feel like gives me an advantage because not only do I understand the classics, but I also understand African cooking and I also understand African ingredients and um, West African ingredients. And um, for me, as you know, as a black chef, as an African chef, I feel like that should be our superpower because we know a lot, not only about the food that we've grown up eating, but about the Western food as well, about yeah. the Western classics as well. Yeah, and you do mention Afrofusion, and, and we'll go into that as we talk mm-hmm. about your food moments. But just briefly, um, I remember when Yemisiara Pasala was on the um, the show, her Long Throats memoir, um, it talks about, you know, uh, growing up in Nigeria and uh, the attitude of Nigerians to eating out, and it wasn't done. And she says that when she came to Britain, and she went down to Devon, I think, and they were all obsessing about food. And she was like, this is weird. You know, Africans don't obsess about food you know it's kind of like it's it's food it's feeding you it's not something to fetishize i mean what's the feeling that you have as this kind of you know girl from kent trained at leith's doing fancy dining shwen shwen dining but set against that kind of cultural attitude to in, in west africa in sierra leone I would say we're a little bit obsessed with food, I have to be honest, because not obsessed in the sense we're obsessed with good quality food. Um, And I grew up in a house where my mother is obsessed about good quality food, where she'll go and eat. And even when she was here, sometimes I have to slap her hand because she'll go and eat somewhere and she'll be like, hmm, I I don't think I like it. I think they added this and this to it. I don't think it should be added to that. So she's very traditional in that way where she believes that tradition stays tradition, which I also believe and and all of that. But um, in terms of dining out is not a cultural thing for us. And, you know, we tend to be home cooks and we cook a lot at home and we invite people. We're yeah. feeders and we because we're feeders, we feel like we cannot do that out. Yeah. Well, I you think Emma ha- actually said that if you see um, somebody dining in, in uh, Lagos or somewhere, uh, you know, it's probably a man taking his mistress. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe, maybe that's the case. But dining out is not a thing in Sierra Leone. Um, I think home cooking and eating with friends and family at home, it's it's the thing. But that's changing because um, the Sierra Leoneans in the UK and um, the Sierra Leoneans, the second generation, third generation and people of Sierra Leonean heritage, they want to experience their cuisine outside of home. They want to see new takes of their ingredients outside of home. They want to see their ingredients, um, things that their parents have said to them, or oh, cassava, or oh, cassava leaf and that. They want to see it in a place where they could be proud of it and talk about it, which is where I come in because um, they're familiar with cassava. They're familiar with all these ingredients. They're familiar with the traditional stuff. So for them, the Afrofusion side, which I do, it's a thing that excites them because they're there and they're like, oh, I know that I can eat yam like that. I knew that, I, you know, my mom can fry plantain, but I didn't know that my mom can do plantain and add feta to it. Yeah. I didn't know that my mom can do a goosey and add beetroot and goat cheese to it. So those new takes is the exciting part for them. And even the older, you know, older Cerulean's as well. To them, that's the new exciting parts of that because it's a new take on ingredients that they're very familiar with. I tend to cook more traditional stuff for people that are not aware of Cerulean food. I would say you more European get excited. Europeans get excited about um, the traditional stuff. 
that Africans or Sierra Leoneans get excited about the Afrofusion side of things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about that. That's your first food moment, the Agusi sweet potato and goat cheese bread. Tell yeah. me about that. It was, um, it's one of your childhood memories. Oh, yes. Bread. Bread is um, a big deal in Sierra Leone. We're mad about bread. Like we, we, we consume so much bread. Seriously, we should start growing our own wheat and stuff. But um, we do consume lots of bread. And um, bread was so important. Every single morning we had fresh bread. So we had a local bakery and um, that supplies bread. And that local bakery gets its bread from this amazing, amazing um, historic um, bakery called Red Lion um, Bakery, which um, I later find out that even my my agent that I've got now, that's her grandmother's bakery, which I didn't I didn't know. So there was that connection um, as well there. But um, we we got fresh bread in the house every morning for breakfast. And also we got bread for pack lunch. So bread became so important, but it's not just about just eating any normal bread. It's about eating fresh bread and fresh warm bread with butter. So up to this day, having nice fresh bread baked in the house that smells really lovely with warm but- with butter on it. It's the best thing. I can eat that and not add anything to it and I'll be satisfied. But you have added it to it and that is the Afrofusion bit of it. What made you, which bit of it? Is it sweet potato or goat cheese? What's The egusi the is the, the, the pat of it. So egusi, it's melon seeds. And we use that more for savoury dishes in Sierra Leone. So we use it to cook like um, stews and, and, and that. But what I've done, I find you could use it to bake breads. You can add it to sweets. You can make um, um, pralines out of it. And I just wanted to add that extra texture into the bread. Sweet potato, everybody knows sweet potato in the UK, but sweet potato is massive in in um, in Sierra Leone. So again, I wanted to introduce that to it. The goat cheese element for me, I find this say for fusion pat. That's, um, you know, my love for goat cheese. I love goat cheese. So I wanted to bring that goat cheese into it as well, which is why that's got that into in there. Which is win-win for Sierra Leone people as well. You know? well yeah, and, and exactly. something that you love, you know, bringing the new exactly. stuff. You know, exactly. yeah. your, your, your mother will probably be very cross with you. <laughs> you say that it's all about home food, but actually, you know, your second food moment is, is, is street food. Yes. And this is, you know, it's very convivial, isn't it, street food? I love, you know, going to, uh, having street food wherever I am in the world. It's where yes. you get the bars. It's get, yes. Everybody's loving the food. Tell us yes. about the Gary Kenya. Gary Kenya, that's, it's street food, but it's also something that I, my grandmother brought all the time. My grandmother lived in the southern province, so she lives outside of um, Freetown. And whenever she was coming to visit, or she'll bring Gary Kenya. So it's something that I connect to her visiting. And it was an exciting time because it's, um, it's made with cassava and peanut butter and sugar. So it's your little treats. We don't really have chocolates and sweets in Sierra Leone. So Gary Kenya is the closest thing that you're going to get to chocolate, um, to a chocolate bar. So it was always a good time when grandma was visiting because I know that we'll be, she'll be armed with lots of Gary Kenya and we'll be eating that. And when she's not around, of course, I'm looking for it at the streets or after school, walking from home, using my bus fare and walking miles and miles and miles, which annoys my mother <laughs> because again, I'll be walking around as popular as street food is in Sierra Leone, walking around and eating on the streets is something that is really frowned upon. Yeah. It's considered rude. Yeah. So 
to her dissatisfaction or stuff. So, you know, I'll be working from home, dusty, dirty, eating my Gary Kenya, enjoying so myself. Yeah, but really happy <laughs> knowing that when I get home, I'm going to get into trouble. But it was worth it. it Absolutely worth it. Yeah. Your third food moment. It's dedicated, really. The whole book is dedicated, but this recipe in particular is dedicated to the amazing women in Sierra Leone. And you do say that it is not a country that is necessarily good to women. There's a lot of violence towards women. But these women that you have written about, including your mother and your grandmother, are really resilient women. Tell us about the fishbowl stew and about these extraordinary women. It's not just about Sierra Leone. It's everywhere in the world, really, where domestic violence and violence against women happen. I think we should continue to teach our men, to to teach our boys to treat women properly, um, not just in Sierra Leone, but in the UK and everywhere else in the world. Um, so fishbowl stew and the resilience of women. I grew up with my, my mother and it's, she's a strong woman and my grandmother. And I grew up around lots and lots of strong women. Fishbowl stew was this thing that my mom would make or the fishbowls when there's not enough. When she'd be like, oh, I don't have enough money today. Um, you know, I've just got a little bit. So I'm just going to buy like fish that it's not considered like herrings and stuff like that. It's considered cheap f- fish, you know, in Sierra Leone. So I'm just going to get these and just I'm going to make put some peanuts in there. I'm going to put some chili and um, I'm going to fry it and then do this really nice oniony based sauce and add it to it. She thinks she's just letting us down as kids and not giving us like, you know, good proper meal that day. But that was like my best food moment. It was like one of the best things for me because not because I felt, ooh, you know, as a child, you don't really think deeply about, you know, the struggles really and money and all of that. But it's just because I thought it was the best food ever. It was tasty. It was delicious. It was hearty. It was comforting. And it was home. And so as much as she was thinking, oh, you know, I don't have enough today. I'm thinking, yes, you know, fantastic. And my siblings and I were always like absolutely loved it. And with when it comes to resilience, traveling around Sierra Leone, especially during those five days of the book sh- um, location shoot, I, w- I spent quite a lot of time with women. The women in Sierra Leone, they hold on to the kitchen. They prepare the meals. They look after the children. They, they're they basically the bosses in the home. But quite a lot of the time, they're not recognized as those. They're not appreciated as those. And um, throughout the book, I keep talking about that. I feel like they need their applause. They need somebody to say, you're doing an amazing job and you're fantastic. And um, you need to be heard. You need, people need to know about your hard work because, um, I am who I am. I am today because of all the amazing women that I grew up with. My grandmother, my mother, my aunties, you know, the women in the community. Because in Sierra Leone, you're not just your mother's child or your grandmother's um, granddaughter. You're the community's child, basically, which is an amazing thing. I know that I cannot go out and misbehave because that my mother doesn't have to do anything. It'll be another auntie that will probably, you know, give me a couple of slaps and bring me home. And my mother will add on top of that because she's thinking, how dare you go out and disrespect <laughs> and disrespect the community <laughs> like that. So it's, it's an amazing, it's amazing. It takes a village to make a child as it, as it should be. Absolutely. Your final food moment is um, a wonderful example of that resilience and that resourcefulness. Um, the Sierra Leonean style rich cake, again, a little bit of Afrofusion here, 
there. Yes. But coming back to the real spirit of it, of, of, of resourcefulness. Tell us about this one. Oh, yes, absolutely. This one, um, I love, love. And you, you don't think about the labor that goes into this until you're surrounded by all these wonderful mixes and, um, in the UK. And then you realize, oh my God, there's a simpler way of doing this. But at that, in that moment in Sierra Leone, you're just like, this is the only way to do it. You're basically creaming butter and sugar with a wooden spoon that takes forever. Hours hours to get it to that creamy light whiteness that you expect from a a, a sponge cake but it's achieved through lots of muscles through lots of grits through lots of mixing and that it's absolutely achieved and then the ingenuity for me it's baking a sponge with three fire stones basically three stones couple of woods and moving those around as the baking goes, but put in this large pot, knowing to put sand in that pot, put tins in it, like milk, empty tins. So everything recycled, empty tins, greased, used as baking things, adding all of those stuff on top of it, and then baking in that and having a perfect cake, well risen, <laughs> totally delicious, spend hours doing it, probably the rest of the whole day baking it. But it was so worth it. And I looked forward to it. Like you forget about the labor the minute it comes out. You're like, oh, wow. But I didn't appreciate it at that time until I started baking in the UK. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, there's simpler ways of doing this. <laughs> but <gonna> but <laughs> I mean, we do fetishize these people around the world spending hours making bread and stuff. And you talk to them and they'll go, give me a food mixer, please. <laughs> But yeah, but it was just, it was delicious. And to them, it just felt like, do you know what? This is, to, to, to us, it just felt like it's the best way to bake and it comes out delicious and it's our way and we appreciate it. And I was very disappointed when I went back for location shoots and we couldn't find anyone doing it like that. These days it's all, all baked. Yes, <laughs> it's all baked in ovens and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, bring me back to the time where we did it with our hands. I want the label. I want all of that because that is what makes our food culture and that's what makes food in Sierra Leone exciting because it's worth it you finish it and you feel like you've earned the right to eat that and when somebody gives you that recipe you feel like you've earned the right to receive that recipe and I want to keep that pride thanks for listening do pop over to Substack for extra bites of sweets alone just search for Jilly Smith on Substack and I'll see you next week